Welcome to Diseases in Dialogue. In this podcast, researchers from the Diseases of Modern Life project at the University of Oxford join experts from a range of fields to discuss some of the major questions surrounding the scientific, technological and medical developments that have defined the modern era. In this episode, we consider how the relationship between doctor and patient has changed since the 19th century in light of new medical knowledge and practices. Did Victorian surgeons take their patients' wishes and expectations seriously? How have the regulations surrounding medical consent changed? How can we ensure that individuals are adequately informed when they choose whether to undergo potentially life-changing surgery? I'm Sally Frampton. I'm a Humanities and Healthcare Fellow at the Humanities Division at the University of Oxford. And I have a particular interest in the history of modern medicine and healthcare, and especially the history of surgery. Hi, I'm Ashok Kander. I'm a vascular surgeon at the John Radcliffe Hospital, uh, and I'm also an Associate Professor of Surgery in the Nuffield Department of Surgical Sciences. And for the university, I have responsibility for all of undergraduate teaching in surgery, and I'm particularly interested in uh, values and consent in patients. Ashok, it's great to talk to you today um, about our shared interest in in surgery. Um, On first impressions, it might seem perhaps that 19th century surgery can't tell us much about the the world of modern surgery. We often think of Victorian surgery as a time of of horror, of butchery, especially before anaesthesia, a medical landscape essentially that is very different from our own. But in my own research, which is in particular focused on the history of abdominal surgery and also gynecological surgery, there is a lot that I see in the cases that I come across which I think can tell us something about the issues that we still face today in some form or another. So to kick off today, I'm going to talk about one particular case, which is the case of Alice Beattie, um, who was a, a nurse, a young nurse from Norfolk, who in 1896 began to garner some media attention when she brought a uh, legal action against a surgeon, a very well-known surgeon called Charles Cullingworth. So Alice Beattie um, for some years had noticed a swelling in her pelvis, um, which was diagnosed eventually as an ovarian cyst. So the options for the treatment of that disease at that point in time tended to be surgical, an operation called ovariotomy, um, which by the 1890s was being performed quite frequently. If you had an ovariotomy, you might have one ovary removed, or you might have two ovaries removed if disease was found to be present in both of the organs. Obviously, the ramifications of that were that you would then um, uh, be sterile, essentially. So quite a serious operation, even though by the 1890s, um, it's generally becoming safer. The mortality is around 2 to 4% by then, although some of us might debate how accurate those statistics were, but that was the statistics that doctors put out. So with this particular case, I'm going to draw on The Lancet, um, which at that point was uh, the leading medical journal, presumably still is today, and how The the Lancet um, discussed this particular operation. So I'm I'm going to read a short quote um, about the operation and what happened leading up to it. So leading up to it, essentially, Alice Beattie had had some concerns about going through this operation. She was a nurse, so she perhaps had more medical information than uh, lots of women would have had at the time about this operation. And she was very cognizant that if both her ovaries were removed, she would not be able to have children. 
And this was a particular concern. She was engaged to be married. There's lots going on in her life at this point in time. And she's obviously extremely worried about that. Um, there is some debate about whether she consented to the operation, which we'll be talking about today. But as The Lancet described it, she eventually consented to the operation. But when she was brought into the operating room, she once again reiterated her objection to having both ovaries removed. If both ovaries were diseased, neither were to be removed. Dr Cullingworth replied to her that he knew her wishes and would not remove more than he could help, but that she really must be content to leave the matter in his hands. The patient said no more. Dr Cullingworth very naturally concluded that behaviour at this time necessarily implied that she was content to leave him to do what in his judgment seemed best. So there's lots going on in this case. There's lots of questions about consent, about risks, about surgical morality and ethics as it's being constructed um, in the 19th century. So this is perhaps a kind of good place to maybe open up. And Ashok, as a, as a surgeon practising today, what are your thoughts when you read and look at an article like this? Well, when I look at that case, I, I think, well, th there certainly are parallels. There are some of those things don't seem to have changed over the 120 years or so, uh, and yet others have, and in particular we now have a new case law uh, from April 2015, the Montgomery Judgment, which I think substantially changes that and is a game changer, although it is largely drawn actually from current GMC guidance, but it's been made much more explicit in that um, uh, up to uh, Montgomery, the, the, the law has been around something called the Bolam Test, or Sidaway, and that judgment says that uh, uh, most of us in medicine and particularly in surgery are judged by a jury of our peers that if a reasonable doctor or reasonable practitioner, reasonable surgeon would have undertaken a particular course of action, then that would be uh, judged as being non-negligent. Uh, what Montgomery does is to change that to say that, uh, uh, and it really shifts the balance from the reasonable healthcare practitioner or surgeon to the reasonable patient uh, and that means that would a reasonable patient have consented to a procedure uh, and I think looking back to that case from 1896 I think undoubtedly that surgeon would have uh, been thought to be in breach of the Montgomery judgment so I think the law has now made it explicit that you should take into account a patient's views and their values i.e. what's important to the patient is as important as the evidence for a particular course of action as well as the clinician's expertise. So what's been the reaction of the medical profession to the Montgomery ruling? Has it generally been positive? Well, I think it's fair to say that the, the Montgomery ruling, and I, and I don't know if it's worth just outlining that judgment, so the Montgomery ruling, the case is a very interesting one of a woman called Nadine Montgomery, and she's a woman with diabetes and short stature. Uh, and when she was having her discussion with her obstetrician, actually who happens to be a very good obstetrician, a Dr. McClellan, this is a case from Scotland, uh, she'd been talking about her concerns about a vaginal delivery and wanted to explore the option of a caesarean section. Uh, and essentially, Dr. McClellan's view was that she was not prepared to have that discussion about uh, elective caesarean section on the basis that in her expert opinion the vast majority of women who had that discussion then opted for a caesarean section on the basis that they placed the uh, safety of their baby above their own uh, and which is entirely understandable 
And what Dr. McLennan felt, and a reasonable body of other obstetricians, was that the risk to the baby was so low that um, they weren't prepared to have that discussion uh, and not really have that as part of the uh, options available to the woman. Sadly, what happened with Mrs. Montgomery was that she did end up with a large baby, which women with diabetes are prone to have. The baby got stuck in the birth canal during the second stage of labour and unfortunately had both some brain hypoxia and the baby was too big to fit through the birth canal, had something called shoulder dystocia, which has left uh, the child with permanent uh, disability in the dominant right arm. Uh, and so uh, Mrs. Montgomery then sued Dr. McClellan and Lanarkshire Healthcare. And on the basis of the reasonable doctor test, the Bolam test, um, uh, Dr. McClellan was found to be not negligent. What Mrs. Montgomery then did, who's a determined woman, uh, took it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court gave a unanimous uh, decision uh, overturning that judgment on the basis that they felt that Mrs. Uh, Montgomery's views should have been taken into account and that Dr. Lennon should not have withheld that information about women with diabetes. And so this really marks a shift from the reasonable doctor to the reasonable patient or the prudent patient test. Uh, so I think this is a major change. The question you asked me was how has this been received by the medical profession? And I think it's actually been largely misunderstood. In the first 18 months or so, the people just ignored it and put their head in the sand. And even some of the medical defense organizations said, well, this isn't going to change anything because it's just uh, demonstrating what we've already known as good medical practice by the General Medical Council. And, and they're correct in that. However, I think it does mean that there has to be a shift in the way we have our consultations with patients. And the people who've really taken this on have been the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. They've put together a shared decision-making collaborative uh, and they're just putting out a, uh, a new committee to look at the guidance for doctors and healthcare professionals on shared decision-making. Uh, and the essence of Montgomery really is to do what um, uh, is considered in any case to be best practice, which is to take the best available clinical evidence, that's what NICE do, combine it with clinical expertise and experience, but also, and this is the really key point, take into account the patient's values and what's important to the patient. And I think that's the step change where you can put together the best evidence and clinical expertise, which will mean the reasonable patient, but it also takes into account the particular patient. And that's why we wrote this article called The Reasonable and the Particular, because there's two limbs of the judgment, saying that not only must you as a practitioner take into account the best evidence in your experience, but what's important to that patient should be a crucial part of the decision making. So are we seeing a sort of reconceptualization of risk with this? Because it seems to me it's not necessarily to do with perhaps the size of the risk, but what risks are of, of most significance to the patient. So for instance, with Alice Jane Beatty, you know, she's told there's a very slight chance you might end up with both ovaries removed. And if you do, that means that you won't be able to have children. But in her values, what she wants for her life, this is a huge part of her life. This is something that she's intending to do with her future husband. And if there's any chance of that happening, that's going to have a, a significant impact on her life and her future. So is it that there's a reconceptualization of risk, thinking more about the risks which 
maybe of greater concern to the patient? I think it's about both that reconceptualization of risk, but also about understanding that we make lots of assumptions about what's important to individual people. And that, you know, the, the bottom line is that not everyone thinks like you and me, and patients think very differently. So we've been running a series of seminars in the Collaborating Centre for Values-Based Practice. And the crux of it is when we ask people to make a decision, and we call this a forced choice exercise, where we say to people that you've got a, a symptoms of a fatal disease and that you are fortunate that the best evidence supported by NICE says that there are two treatments available. And treatment A uh, gives you a period of remission in months or years, at, which, at the end of which you would have uh, you would drop dead painlessly. Or you can have treatment B, which is a 50-50 kill or cure. And we ask people to make a decision on how long would they want in X months or years. And even when you ask a group of eight people or nearly 700 people, as we once did in the Sheldonian uh, in, in Oxford, there's a huge variety of responses from four weeks to 50 years and peaks within that. And when we then ask people, why did you choose this particular thing? A whole load of very different information comes out. For some people, it's the age of their children. For some, it's things they want to perceive. For some, it's a very technical thing that I'm going to work out what risk I'm prepared to take. For others, it's about caring for elderly patients. Others, it's about their bucket list. And so it turns out this huge heterogeneity of things that are important to people, hence their values. And so... What it does is allows us to train healthcare professionals and surgeons in particular about saying, well, what you and I would choose may not be what the patient chooses. So this is really moving from doctor knows best to the patient knows what they want best. And now then you can enter into a dialogue with the patient to together work out which of the options might suit that particular patient at that time of their lives. And that will change. So it's really a more nuanced conversation than simply about risk. And of course, the risk that you're prepared to take for a particular outcome will be different to the ones the next person will or I will. So it's about there needs to be a different kind of dialogue, a different kind of is the term therapeutic alliance. And in fact, the Montgomery judgment specifically says that this is uh, requires healthcare professionals to enter into a dialogue with the patient to the point that you understand what's important to them before together then making that decision on which course of action to follow for that particular patient. Uh, and so that's exactly what the law now says. That's exactly what I think many of my colleagues have already been practicing. It's just this, this makes it explicit that we should all, uh, all be doing that. So I, th I think it's been a very helpful change in the law to try and... Uh, uh, shift that balance, as I said before, to being more centred towards what might be important to that particular patient in that instance. So it almost seems like thinking about it historically, we have this kind of high point in the late 19th and 20th century of, I guess you might call it medical paternalism. And in fact, there's a sea change happening again and sort of thinking back to the individualised patient and the importance of the patient narrative, I guess, in the clinical encounter. Yes, and I think what I would say is that, the, you know, you asked me earlier, how has it been received by the medical profession? And I think there have been a lot of misunderstandings. So one 
uh, response from many people saying, oh, it takes too long to do that. Uh, and my view is, well, actually, it's much better to take a bit longer to make a good decision than to take a short time to make a bad one or one that uh, you or the patient live to regret or, or sometimes don't live uh, and, and regret. So I think uh, my, my view is always responsibility is actually you can't afford not to spend this time. And another thing that the BT kind of case brings up is this question of the unexpected in surgery. And I'd be quite interested to know how much that is an issue in surgery still. So obviously here in 19th century surgery, we don't have any scanning. We can't, can't really see what's going on on the inside. So there's always a certain level of unexpectedness, I think, when you're looking at 19th century and, and not really knowing what's happening with those organs. And so hence you get um, episodes like this where there's no clear picture before Cullingworth goes in of what's happening with this with this left ovary. He suspects there might be something wrong, but it's really only while he's doing the operation that it becomes an issue. And then there's this whole dialogue about whether her sister should be called in, Alice's BT sister, you know, to ask her opinion of what should be done. So I was wondering really how surgeons, how do surgeons deal when when an operation is perhaps not going as expected and, and issues are found and complications are found which might potentially have an impact on the patient you know, going on with their life or might cause certain complications. How is that dealt with? Well, I mean, you bring an excellent point up. So the first thing to say is absolutely acknowledge that there's been a, uh, an amazing revolution of imaging and pre-planning for surgical and other interventions. So we have more information about the exact anatomy, the physiology, pathology of patients before we operate than our predecessors did by a long way. Uh, and so it means that uh, we have to be, if I can use an analogy from the airline industry, we have to be much more like commercial pilots where everything is planned than fighter pilots. And, and surgeons definitely had that fighter pilot mentality in the past that you're, you're dealing with the unknown, you're going to go and do the best you can uh, and at the end of the day, you will win on behalf of your patient and do a great job. And I think that there's been a bit of that in the history of surgery, certainly. And of course, we know that many of the advances in surgery have only been possible by advances in anesthesia and anesthetic techniques. But equally, many of the advances in surgical techniques have been possible by people wanting to try and do the impossible, like heart transplants, like kidney transplants, etc., so uh, we, we need a balance between that uh, discovery phase of people who are innovators and uh, cutting edge and at the same time, no pun intended, and at the same time uh, about thinking about safety and planning. So the technological revolution with imaging gives us much better planning. Having said that, you know, what something looks like and what the quality of the tissue is when you start operating can be very different and increasingly we're doing much more complex surgery in older patients with other illnesses so-called comorbidities uh, and so uh, the technical aspects of surgery have become more and more challenging as well and so I think the way to approach this is it is worth knowing up front from patients the things that they absolutely wouldn't want you to do and in the case of Miss Beatty, she'd made that really clear. And if it was a question of something that intraoperatively was life-threatening or some complication where you had to take a course of action, I think that a surgeon would be perfectly uh, legitimate in approaching that in a way. Because once you've started operating, 
your primary interest is to do the best possible for that patient. I think having had a discussion with a patient before on their red lines, if you like, uh, would be helpful. And I think that's what the Montgomery judgment does, is to make us explicitly have those conversations uh, with patients. I think the other side of the coin is that, of course, you know, we're doing, we have, it's a great privilege to be able to do these amazing things to people's bodies. Uh, and so with that privilege comes responsibility. And the responsibility is to act in the best interests of the patient. But, the, you know, in general, people are doing what they think is the right thing to do, the best thing to do. I think what's different, where the, historically it was doctor knows best, and surgeons in particular were treated as demigods, I'm pleased to say that we've moved on to a more shared decision-making model. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're in the middle of an operation and something happens, then I think you have to do what you think is in the best interest of the patient at the time. What I would add to that is that we don't work as surgeons in isolation. We all work in teams. And so there's much more of an ethos of talking to the anaesthetist, talking to the scrub nurse, talking to your assistant, and even phoning a colleague to come during surgery to come and assist both if things are complicated or if there's a difficult judgment decision to be made. And I think increasingly surgeons are doing that. And certainly in my own practice, if there's a complicated case, I have no hesitation with phoning a colleague and saying, can you come and help? I could do with some wisdom and some advice. Uh, and, and so that's a better way to go forward, I think. So perhaps getting away from those models we had of the early 20th century surgeon, the kind of lone innovator, you know, the, the leader of the pack and so forth, and thinking about surgery more as a an exercise in teamwork essentially sometimes yes and, and i agree that in, in teams someone has to take the lead but but actually working in teams we know gives you better outcomes and gives you safer care for patients uh, and the whole movement around the checklist agenda and the world health organization checklist has made that team working uh, uh, an intrinsic part of surgical care slightly getting away from the BT case but thinking about surgical innovation as well which is is really interesting because I suppose how you create new operations is perhaps different from how you um, create and uh, understand the efficacy of a new drug for instance you know you, you've got you've got your person there you know this is something you can't I presume you can't have placebo surgery I, I well, don't know whether really, that is really, a thing really but you say that so you're, you're right that how we approach Getting evidence in surgery yes. is different yes. to getting evidence because you can create a placebo pill that looks exactly yeah. identical so on. And in surgery, it is that little bit harder. Having said that, one of the uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons, Andrew Carr in Oxford, has just pioneered having what we'd call sham surgery, where a patient has the anaesthetic, has an incision, but doesn't have the procedure. And he's demonstrated very eloquently that most interventions in shoulder surgery have no additional benefit to patients. Uh, and, and so he's definitely a man to look out for. And, and one of the people I, I look up to is a, a pioneer 
in developing modern surgical practice and evidence in surgery. That is fascinating because I did some work on the history of keyhole surgery and that seemed to be a very interesting era in terms of how you evidence whether the keyhole surgery was more effective than the general surgery and there seemed to be some questions about how you gather that evidence because it kind of seemed to take off before it was well evidenced and was quite a controversial issue for a time so interesting to see how ideas of evidence and evaluation sort of change in surgery. No, no, you're absolutely right. I think the advent of laparoscopic keyhole yes. surgery in the abdomen, particularly with gallbladder surgery, was, was a real example of how, how not to bring in a new innovation. Having said that, uh, those of us, and I'm old enough to have uh, been doing open gallbladder surgery for the first four years of my surgical training, uh, know that the benefits to patients in length of stay, recovery, are enormous. Uh, and so sometimes you don't need huge trials to demonstrate a difference. This is raising so many issues that I came across in my in my own research as well. So, I mean, another thing that that makes me think of and think you've mentioned your colleague doing sham surgery, which is fascinating. But this question of necessary surgery, how 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 necessary surgery is. So at this time when Alice Beatty is is having this court action. Part of the reason it becomes um, such a high-profile case and ends up in the popular press is because there's a real question of how many ovariotomies are necessary. Um, surgeons gain this skill. They, they start to understand how to remove ovaries safely and for the patient to have a longer life, often with a good quality of life afterwards. And there's a real concern in the 1890s um, that the operation is being done too much simply because it can be done. And they often talk about it as a kind of period of surgical mania. And that's the surgeons themselves often describing that as happening. It's something that, that strikes me as still pertinent. There's a lot of questions over caesarean sections, for instance, and how many caesarean sections um, are necessary. Um, could you perhaps speak about that in the modern context and whether that's still, yeah, certainly still an I, issue? I think It is an issue, and I think it's certainly true that... Uh, uh, you train surgeons, surgeons like doing operations, uh, and, and they will want to do as many of them as they can. Uh, you know, th there's an old surgical adage which says that you spend the first 10 years learning how to operate, the next 10 years learning when to operate, and the last 10 years of your career learning when not to operate. Of course, the secret is to learn the lessons of the second and third decades at the same time, concurrently in the first. So at the end of your training, you know all of those things. Uh, and that's why I think we, we have increasingly multidisciplinary teams where there's peer review of practice of particular surgeons. Uh, and, and most good surgical units will have a weekly meeting where patients who are being planned to be offered a particular intervention will be discussed by a team. And there's peer review of your colleagues uh, as to whether you're undertaking best practice. And I think those are good ways of governance of both protecting patients uh, and in enhancing best practice. So the BT case was, was a particularly controversial case in the 1890s. There were thousands of ovariotomies taking place across the country, across the world at this point in time. And this one was particularly controversial. It was brought to, to legal action because she was a nurse, so she had more medical information, she had some confidence. Um, to take the case to the courts. Um, she also had significant backing as well from a number of campaigners. Um, so Beatty was allowed to have her voice heard. We must remember there was, of course, lots of other cases 
possibly where similar things were happening to women where we don't know what the outcome was and those those cases are sadly lost to history. But I think even though this is quite an extreme example, we see a lot in it which we can still see today in some of the issues that surgeons and patients are tackling, um, questions of consent, questions of risk, questions of innovation, um, questions of patient care and patient values. Um, these are constantly evolving and changing fields. And I think and I hope that looking back to some of these historical cases can perhaps be useful to practitioners as well. No, well, thank you for asking me. And I agree that looking back at that historical case uh, does bring up that some of those questions still exist today. And although the Montgomery judgment, I think, has helped us move forward with that in an explicit way, uh, trying to get the whole of the medical profession and healthcare workers behind it and working in that way is going to be the challenge for the next 10-15 years and, and I'm very optimistic that the both the GMC, the medical defence organisations, the Royal Medical Colleges and NICE will help us to drive this agenda so that we are uh, in a model of true shared decision making with patients. Ashok, thank you so much. Um, it's, it's just been fascinating um, hearing about your research, hearing about your experiences as well and uh, I hope we can continue the conversation.